0: One of your handouts has a summary of last week's teaching plus this week's teaching as the nature of marriage. So that will give you a summary of both teachings. So last week in Matthew 19 verse 4, we looked at God's creation of male and female and the implications of being made that way from Genesis 1:27 and 28. And that message connects tightly to this one. If you didn't listen to that one, please go listen to it to get both together. Tonight we're going to look at Matthew 19 verses 5 and 6 and dig into God's creation of marriage in Genesis 2, 24. So let's read our text again. Matthew 19 verses 3 through 6. The Pharisees also came to him, testing him, and saying to him, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? And he answered and said to them, Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, I thank you for those words that we sang tonight, that you will hold us fast. And I thank you for your promise that nothing will separate us from your love in Christ. And so we rest secure and safe and thankful for what you have done for us. And so tonight, please open our eyes to the goodness of your creation in male and female and marriage and help us to rejoice in that and embrace it with all of our strength, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So let's pick up in the first phrase of verse 5, Matthew 19, verse 5, which is just two words, and said. He who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said. So, in verse 4, in answering the Pharisees' question about divorce, Jesus quotes one phrase from Genesis 1.27, and then he connects that phrase with Genesis 2.24 with those two words, and said. So, let's go back to Genesis two to understand the significance of those two words. So first of all, Genesis 2.24 was spoken at the wedding of Adam and Eve. Yes, there was a wedding, not with a white dress or a tiered cake, but a wedding nonetheless. Now you might ask how I can say such a thing because the word wedding isn't found anywhere in Genesis 1 or 2. And We don't read of them taking or giving marriage vows to each other. Okay, fair enough. Here's how we know. In Genesis 2, verses 21 and 22, we read that God made the woman and then brought her to the man. And then the man clearly spoke in verse 23. And then someone else spoke in verse 24. And we're going to find out who that was a little later. And then in verse 25, we have commentary that tells us that the man and his wife were naked and were not ashamed. So, who is said to be naked in verse 25? The man and the woman? No, the man and his wife. So, God brought a single unmarried woman to a single unmarried man, and then something changed that single unmarried woman into a wife, a married woman. What was it? A wedding. First, a a voluntary acceptance of God's pattern for marriage in the form of a covenant. Each one promising themselves to the other, unqualified. And then the consummation or the completion of that covenant, the act that puts that covenant into motion, sexual intimacy. And those two things together change a single woman into a married woman. A woman who belongs to the man that she possesses as her very own. And then the bride can say, my beloved is mine, and I am his. Song of Solomon 2.16. That's biblical romance. That's real romance. And so in Genesis uh, 2.22, God brings the woman to the man... And then in verse 23, the man, Adam, speaks. So imagine the two of them standing there before God, perhaps hand in hand, and uh, they're looking into each other's eyes just like happens today, except they've never seen each other. Imagine that. And Adam says, this one, this female human being, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman because she was taken out of man. Now, these are profound words, and they are prophetic words. Profound because Adam is verbalizing and understanding that this woman is intimately connected to him in a very special way. She has been taken out of him, literally. So he has moral obligations to her and she to him. And... They are profound because they enshrine in language and dictionaries, maybe even in Wikipedia, I don't know, that the woman was taken out of the man from the very flesh and bone of the man. So there is this intimate connection that neither can escape, not even today, as much as some attempt to do so. And these are prophetic words. Why? Because Adam... I mean, Paul uses Adam's words in Ephesians 5 verse 30 to speak of the intimate connection between Christ and his bride, the church. He writes, for we are members of his body, of his flesh and of his bones. Now meditate on that one for a while. And then after Adam spoke the words of verse 23, verse 24 goes on to say, therefore, A man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. who spoke those words? The newer translations put Adam's words in verse 23 in quotation marks. Not around verse 24 because as I understand, Hebrew grammar tells the translators that Adam did not speak the words of verse 24. So who spoke them? Well, Moses is certainly writing them down on probably clay tablets. But was he writing commentary on Adam's words as if he was some kind of ancient John MacArthur? Perhaps. Or did God give Moses a new revelation that no one had ever understood before? Well, that can't be true because everyone in all the world was already living according to this pattern, including Moses. So Moses is recording ancient history. He's recording some very important words, that had been spoken on the sixth day of creation at the first wedding. So who spoke those words? Jesus tells us who spoke them. He who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said. So the same one who made male and female then had something to say about how being made in that way would work itself out between the male and the female. So the words of Genesis 2.24 are God's words. They're God's words. And I've labored to establish that because God is making an authoritative declaration to that first couple and to all mankind, telling them how things are meant to go in male-female relationships. He's laying down the law. He's laying down the foundation principles of marriage. And to refuse God's words is sin. Now, look at the second phrase of Matthew 19, verse 5. He who made them at the beginning made them male and female, and said, For this reason, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother. Now, why does a man leave father and mother? He leaves because he's male and he's interested in a female. That's the reason he leaves. So, being made as male will naturally compel the male and push the male out to seek a female. And then, comprehensively, join him to that female in marriage and then lead them both to, be, to become one flesh, resulting in children creating a family now look at the third phrase of Matthew 19 verse 5 which reads like this he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother so notice God speaks here of a man in particular not a woman A man leaves father and mother. Of course, a woman also eventually leaves father and mother as well. But God is focused on the man here in particular. Why? We're not told here, but in the New Testament, we see that the Son of God left his father to seek and save his bride. Luke 19 verse 10. And then cleanse and clothe and renew her, Ephesians five, verse twenty five to twenty nine. Protect her, Ephesians five twenty three, marry her, Revelation nineteen seven, and then bring her into the house that he built for her, John ten of John fourteen, verse twenty three. And further, he left his father to subdue sin and death, first Corinthians fifteen fifty four. And have dominion. Philippians 2, verse 10 and 11. You see, the man corresponds to Christ, and the woman corresponds to the church. And that's why a man leaves. And this is also how marriages have been formed since the beginning the man leaving father and mother, the woman being given by her father into his protection. And it's only been within the last five or so generations that it's become common for a young woman to leave her home before she was married. After the rise of feminism, which says that women need no such protection? A man shall leave his father and mother. A man, not a boy. So there's a necessary maturity in view here in body, in mind, Emotions and training. The verb here, shall leave, is in the future tense and the indicative mood. Now, what in the world does that mean? Well, future tense tells us that he will leave in the future, obviously. A boy matures over time, and in the future when he is ready, now he leaves father and mother. Future tense indicative mood The indicative mood conveys a certainty. This is what a man shall do. The Hebrew grammar conveys a strong certainty. That's why it is a man shall leave father and mother to a woman to be joined to her in marriage. Now, our culture hates that kind of language about marriage, right? It's seen more like a bucket list activity. And if it's not on the list, well, so what? Who cares? But that's not God's pattern. Now, certainly there is a level of human agency here and God's providence and other realities, but God placed in the male an urge toward the female that he intended to be fulfilled within marriage. 1 Corinthians 7 verse 2. Now, forgive me for being crass, but he should not be like a male dog responding to a female in heat. No. The image of God in him demands... Love and self-control. So, the far-reaching consequences of his sexuality and hers are serious. Why? Because it brings new eternal souls into the world. So, a man should approach a woman in sanctification and honor, not in passion of lust like the unbelievers. 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 3-8. through So, the man is programmed to leave, you could say. He shall leave parents for her. And he will also probably leave behind friends who try to convince him that she is going to restrict his fun and freedom of action. Actually, marriage will liberate him into a soul-satisfying, sacrificial community of love. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 8. Ephesians 5.25. His relationship with his parents will change by God's design. He leaves his formative relationship and enters into his life relationship. And if he won't leave, there's a problem. God intends that he leave and be joined to a wife. So the grammar lesson doesn't end there. This verb, shall leave, is in the active voice, meaning that the man is the one making the decision to leave and then leaving. So, he shall leave father and mother. They should not have to push him out. He shall leave them. They should not hold on to him. He shall leave them, and they must prepare him from childhood to leave them so that when his male body impels him to seek a wife he has prioritized marriage and he is ready. He's not required to relocate to another town in leaving rather he shall leave their sphere of authority to establish a new household with his own sphere of authority and they must let him do that. He shall leave father and mother but not in disobedience to God's command to honor them. He should highly value their wisdom. He should want and desire their blessing. But he shall leave father and mother and place them as secondary to his wife, giving her priority, giving himself up for her so as to love her properly. He shall leave. In the words of Proverbs twenty four twenty seven, his fields should be planted before he builds his house. This means that he must be engaged in his mission. He has direction in life and he has prospect for income to support a family before getting married. And what is his mission? Well, to be fruitful and multiply for sure. And some part of subduing the earth and having dominion over living things. That is his mission. And so he capitalizes on his God-given strengths and talents and training to be useful in the particular spot where he is. He needs a helper in this mission. He needs a wife, but not another mother. And not a housemaid to pick up his dirty socks. He should be able to do that what he needs is a particular kind of helper who brings to him a woman's nurturing strength a woman's wisdom and her life-giving power of childbearing capacity he needs a helper willing to come along with him he doesn't follow her he interrupts her life and she must decide if she will go with him genesis 24:58 so He needs to know and she needs to know are they facing in the same direction? Do they worship and serve the same God? Can he lead her? Will she follow him? Necessary questions to resolve prior to engagement, not after marriage. He should be actively working to create an environment in his life and in his house that is conducive to For marriage, establishing living conditions that enable a young woman to flourish. John 14, verses 2 and 3. Should he be attracted to her? Of course he should be attracted to her. But the word of God tells us that charm is deceitful and beauty is passing. But a woman who fears the Lord, she is the one that is praised. Proverbs 31, 30. So above all else, he should seek a young woman who fears the Lord. That is the most important thing and nothing is more important than that. He should, he should be growing into a spiritual leader, meaning a man who does not passively follow his wife but instead actively leads her toward Jesus Christ. And that leadership begins in worship meaning in his personal submission to the lord jesus christ in every aspect of his life and this worship will lead him to drive a stake into the ground and say something like this as for me and my house we will serve the lord joshua 24:15 now does he understand where all this will lead him in life no His faith may take him on a wild ride, or maybe the Lord will take him on a wild ride because of his faith. Think Abraham in Hebrews 11, verse 8. But the quality of his worship will direct how he orders his life, even in the daily activities of his home. And so he should be able to paint a picture for her of how he intends to live his life in light of his faith. And if she chooses to come along, well, then her input will make that picture all the better. It seems to me that a young woman who fears the Lord would be happy to stand alongside a young man like that and lean into the yoke of life with him to help him all her life long. Psalm 45, verse 10. So young men, you are the ones that are required to initiate. But be encouraged. Refuse passivity. Instead, choose godly activity and continue your efforts to stand up into godly, committed manhood. When I was a child, I spoke as a child. I understood as a child. I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. First Corinthians thirteen eleven. So, being made as male and female, first acts to separate out a new couple toward marriage. It then works to create a bond between the two in the marriage. So the fourth phrase of Matthew 19, verse 5, reads like this. He who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and be joined to his wife. So this verb be joined is also in the future tense and indicative mood. And this means that the joining of a man to his wife is what shall certainly happen to him when he leaves his parents and marries her. This Greek verb be joined means to glue one thing to another. Right? Glue binds two things together. So the gluing of marriage joins a man and a woman together and unites them into a single unit. And this simple verb, then think about this. It teaches us that God intended marriage to be for life. If you try to break two glued pieces of wood apart, you break the wood you don't break the glue. And that's the effect of divorce. It's, it's, it's painful, it's damaging, and it's shattering. And this verb, be joined, is in the passive voice, meaning that the man is not the one taking action to make the gluing happen. Rather, an outside force is at work on the man to glue him to the woman, it's something that happens to him. So, who or what is acting upon the man to glue him to his wife? Well, God, of course, is the cause of it all. But how does God join the two? What's the means that he uses? Well, being made as male and female naturally prepares them, primes them, you might say, to be glued together. They're ready for it. How has a male been prepared and made ready to be glued to a female? Basically, he's fascinated by her. Why? Because she's female. And so, he has a strong inborn desire for intimacy with her. He has a manly urge to protect her. There's a paternal care that just naturally arises in his heart uh, for the children that are born out of their union. His mind and his body are made for and bent toward protecting her and providing for her. That's how he's prepared. But then what does the glue consist of? Well, maybe things like the good friendship that develops between them. They enjoy each other. The economic partnership of life that they pursue together. The comfort and support they enjoy together day by day as they share the joys and sorrows of life. The shared delight in and the love for their children. The stability that their marriage commitment brings into their life the respect and honor between them, and the the sexual intimacy they continually share. That's the glue. And you could maybe say that this glue gets smeared all over both of them, and then they get pressed up against each other as they live life together. And this glue sinks down into the intimate details of their lives and grabs a hold of them and bonds them together and then cures over time to form a very strong bond that God intended to last for a lifetime. So this close bond, this glue is God's creation, and it is very good. It brings health and stability and power into the marriage. And this strong bond is very necessary for the well-being of the children. It's very good for the extended family on both sides. It's good for the village that they will live in. It's good for the church they attend, very good for the church. And it's even good for the nation that they are citizens of. And when the two are separated in divorce, both of them are damaged. The children are damaged far more than our culture will admit today. And all the surrounding relationships are strained and damaged. Sides are taken. And those who were once family and friends often become enemies. So marriage is a very public relationship with public consequences. For good or for ill. Sloppy thinking might lead us to believe that if God is gluing each man to his wife, there should be no conflicts and no divorce. But the fact that God providentially brings a man and a woman together doesn't mean that sin won't destroy their marriage. This is where repentance comes in, in the gospel. So does this glue restrict their freedom? Boy, it sure does. But they should happily yield to the glue, and not strained against it. They're not to abandon each other. They're not to hold each other at arm's length. They're to be joined, glued together in heart and mind. So, do you see a pattern here? God's pattern? Jesus expected the Pharisees to see it. The scriptures say, that a man, singular, shall leave his father and mother and be glued to his wife, singular. One man and one woman glued together for life. One man to one woman, not to many women, not to a different woman whenever he pleases, and not to another man. The last phrase of Matthew 19, verse 5, reads like this. He who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. The two shall become one flesh. So being made as male and female first operates to separate, separate out new couples toward marriage and then it operates to create a bond between the two in the marriage. And now, lastly, being made as male and female is completed or fulfilled or consummated when the two become one flesh. And grammar again, the verb shall become is in future tense indicative mood, meaning that becoming one flesh is what shall certainly take place when the two marry. Why? Because he's male, she's female. That's why. And it's the natural consequence of being made that way, the end point that God intended in the leaving and the gluing. And this verb shall become is in the middle voice, meaning that it is the two of them, the man and the wife, his wife together, who take action to become one flesh. One flesh. The word one refers to a unity of parts that make up one whole thing. Like many grapes make up one cluster, and many members make up one body. The word flesh refers to the physical flesh or the body of a living creature. So then, one flesh is literally a uniting of their two bodies. And the action the two must take to become one flesh is to engage in sexual intimacy, which has the natural God-created and God-intended outcome of producing a baby, a unique person. And this act, along with the marriage covenant, brings the two of them into a single entity, a single, complete, reproducing unit, otherwise known as a family. So right here, a question must be asked and answered. Who has God's permission to engage in sexual intimacy? Answer... Only the man who's been joined to his wife in a valid marriage. It is those two, the man and his wife, who have God's blessing to become one flesh. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. 1 Corinthians 7, verse 2. Now, why only the married pair? Well, it's because God has commanded them to be fruitful and multiply. And this act is the means that he made to bring forth babies. And his pattern is for a baby to be received by its own married mother and father whenever the baby comes. Any other arrangement is not good for the babies. And to break God's pattern is sin. That's why. However, the act of becoming one flesh must be engaged in often first Corinthians seven verses two through five it bonds the two together it 's an integral part of marriage, and if one or both avoid it there 's a problem that must be resolved quickly so we 've seen this whole string of cause and effect in genesis one twenty seven and genesis two twenty four that just reveals to us the glory and the wisdom of God in his creation of male and female. So being made as male will naturally compel the male to seek out a female and leave his parents and then comprehensively glue him to that female in marriage and then will lead the two of them to become one flesh, resulting in children creating a family. This is God's law of marriage. This is, these are the underlying principles of human life. And this law clearly leads away from Divorce. Now, Jesus is not done here in his answer to the Pharisees. So in the first phrase of Matthew 19, verse 6, he draws a logical conclusion of this law of marriage by saying this, so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. They are no longer two, but one flesh. So a unique bond has been created They literally exist in a new reality. The two become a unit, a family, and they must think of themselves as a unit and they must act as a unit, not as two individuals with individual agency somehow loosely connected. The world should view them as a unit and treat them as a unit. They are one flesh, a single complete reproducing unit a family, the building block of human life. Then Jesus brings human responsibility into the picture in the second phrase of Matthew 19, verse 6, by saying this, So then, they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, we need to look at this carefully. So, did the Pharisees bring an appeal to Jesus asking for an exception in the case of the divorce of Uncle Hezekiah and Aunt Golda? No. Remember their question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any reason? Is it lawful under the law of Moses for a man, for any man, for all men, to divorce their wives for just any reason. Now, Uncle Hezekiah is included in that, but in this discussion, he's small potatoes. Their question is up in the realm of law. God's transcendent, overarching law that limits divorce. His law declares what is permitted and what is not permitted. It declares what is moral and what is immoral. And in that day, the Pharisees were hard at work watering down God's law of marriage, among many other of his laws. And their question is also up in the realm of philosophy, because the morality of law is founded in a particular view of human life and how it ought to be lived. So their philosophy of life allowed for very loose marriage bonds and very easy divorce. So the Pharisees were actively undermining God's intentions for human life. They were reimagining and redefining marriage. And in in his response, Jesus is, is not focused on Uncle Hez and Aunt Golda either. His answer is also up in the realm of law and philosophy. And we see this in his response. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not men separate. What God has joined, not those whom God has joined He's focused on a thing. He's not focused on Hez and Golda. Now, those two need help for sure, right? But devaluing marriage and modifying the purposes of marriage in philosophy and watering down the laws of the nation surrounding marriage allow Uncle Hez and Aunt Golda to justify breaking their marriage for just any old reason. So in his answer... Jesus, all he did was he just pointed to Genesis 1.27 and Genesis 2.24. Would you guys look at that, please? Haven't you read that? And then he, as much as said, something like this. Don't you dare water down God's law. Don't you dare teach a philosophy that ignores how God founded marriage in the nature of male and female. Don't you dare suggest that your wife and therefore your family is of so little value... That divorce should be permitted for the most trivial of reasons. Don't you dare ignore the babies that need their own father and mother and need them to work out their difficulties and need them to repent of their sin. Don't you dare turn a blind eye to the damage that you're doing to the babies. Don't you dare. What do we learn from this? We learn that God's law of marriage is meant to be publicly recognized and publicly upheld used as the basis for philosophy and protected in the law codes of nations no individual man no group of men no gathering of all the men in the world or all the women in the world are to act to change marriage by legalizing or tolerating adultery or sexual immorality or abandonment or abuse or neglect Or by allowing babies to be murdered in the womb. Or by making personal fulfillment more important than the babies. Divorce attacks the building. But to say that there's no such thing as male and female now attacks the foundation of the building. And circumvents all of God's purposes for human life. In that day, the Pharisees were were at work reshaping marriage for their purposes today God's pattern for human life is being torn down through the canceling of male and female especially female and so that an ent- an entirely new pattern can be put in its place so in closing let's just look briefly at this family unit that God has formed what God has joined, not those, whom, not those whom God has joined. So what has God joined and when did he join it? He joined male and female at the creation. So the verb Jesus used here in verse 6, joined together, is a different Greek word than the word joined back in verse 5, which meant to be glued together. The word joined together here in verse 6 means to be yoked together. Like two oxen brought up side by side in this yoke of wood placed over their necks and they're physically tied together and together they exert the power of their bodies to do work together. So marriage because of its social and legal legal commitments is like a yoke. Yeah. The Pharisees were busy reshaping that and loosening it so that you could get out of it easier. And in our day, we have people taking access to that thing and they're trying to chop it to pieces. They're trying to set male and female entirely free from biological reality. We're living in Psalm 2 verses 1 through 3. But God's pattern of marriage yokes a man and a woman together tightly so that they can pull a load together that neither of them can pull on their own. And they can do work together that neither of them can accomplish on their own. The load they pull and the work they accomplish is the mandate of God in, in uh, Genesis 1.28. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and play some part in subduing and participate in living or having dominion over living things. So to be effective, both of them must pull at the same time. The man is a male, the woman is a female. No other combination works. No other combination accomplishes God's purposes for human life. So if the two struggle against each other in the yoke, or if they struggle against the yoke itself, little work is accomplished. But if they live together as God intended in the yoke, they find that that yoke reduces the burden of life and multiplies their productive power. So the two of them with their heads cinched up in that yoke are a family. They're a legal entity in in the eyes of the law with the responsibility and the authority to govern itself. A family is is legally and financially responsible for itself and its children is responsible for the nurture and discipline of those children and for the labor and economic activity necessary to support their life. Each family possesses its own children, not the state. The family owns property and assets and distributes inheritance. So this tells us that marriage is a public relationship. What happens in private has very public and legal implications. So God was very wise. The power of human sexuality must be contained within moral boundaries for it to be life-giving and not destructive. Marriage establishes those boundaries. There is safety and blessing for each couple within the boundaries, and there's safety and blessing for the babies when their parents remain inside those boundaries. Marriage as God created it is for human flourishing. Have you not read? Don't you understand that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So then they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man Separate. Father, I pray that you would impress these things upon our hearts. I pray that there would be no reason for divorce ever given among the people here, among these young people, that they would live this out to its fullest. Father, help us repent of our sin and help us to grab a hold of these things for for our lives, for your glory, because this is how you will bless us. And I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for joining me for this sermon from the Trinity College and Young Adult Ministry. We would love for you to join us in person soon. For up-to-date information, follow our Instagram at trinityc.ya. For information regarding Trinity Community Church, visit trinitycc.com. Until he returns, may the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you.